Hey, what's going on? Chad Williams here, former U.S. Navy SEAL. If you guys have your Bibles, wouldn't mind opening up to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. That's the text I'll be reading from in just a little bit here. Uh, this is the Veterans Day message, and to kind of familiarize you guys a little bit with what it was that I was doing in the SEAL teams as a Navy SEAL on the last deployment I was involved in, we're out in Iraq. And given the task of hunting down men that make suicide vests and those roadside bombs, IEDs. And while we're out there, we're working with this group called the ISOF. It's the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. And one of our goals with these guys is to simply teach them how to fight their own fights. And so we figured the best way to do that is not only train them on base, but actually go outside that wire and fight side by side with them. Well, if you can imagine a whole deployment going by, I'd say pretty good because we've bagged and gagged some pretty bad dudes. We're making the world a better place, and we're coming up on what looked like just enough time on the calendar to do maybe one more operation. We weren't really sure if the ice offers ready for us to pass that baton off to them. So we decided, hey, for this final operation, why don't we try and make it a sort of graduation operation? We'll let them plan the whole thing from the ground up, and we'll be there with them just in case things go bad. So they're starting from scratch, hitting the streets, and what's the first thing they need? They need some intel to operate on. And so they find this source out there on the street that tells them about this man that's a, an Iraqi policeman by day, but at night, back home, as it turns out, he's one of these bomb makers that we're looking for. And so the ISOF, they come up with this grand plan. You know, how they want to get into this house, grab this guy, extract, pull off the approach. And so we're looking into this. It all checks out. looks pretty good. Uh, but they did have one unique request. They said, hey, listen, we, the ISOF, we feel we get shot at more than you SEALs do, and we think we figured out why. And so we're kind of curious, all right, what is it? And then we're convinced that it merely came down to the color of uniforms. And so they're saying it's the color of the uniforms. We're laughing at that, like, come on, man, really? The color of a uniform. Not the way we shoot, move, communicate, nothing to do with our tactics in the SEAL teams. You think it comes down to the color of the uniform that we have on. But they are just convinced of this. And so here was their request. They're saying, we're wondering if you'd be willing for this final operation to maybe take off your American colored uniforms and we got a pile of ISOF uniforms for you guys that you could put on. So now we're kind of smiling and laughing saying, all right, let's get this straight. You want us to put your uniforms on to blend in with you to get shot at more with you. And they're like, yes. It's like, fine. It's not about the uniform. So we get their uniforms on. On that night, I'm standing up in the Humvee. I've got that section, the turret, with the 50 caliber machine gun in front of me. And for those of you that don't know, let's just say that's a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody. I've got these night vision goggles on. I'm looking through this green little world and just kind of going over this mental inventory as I'm thinking about all the things I know about this night firing off in my mind. Starting off with my weapon. It's headspace and time. That means it's ready to go. I know where this guy lives. I know how we're going to get in, grab him, extract. But one unique thing I know about this operation that truly makes it different than every other operation, I know this is it. This is the final operation, which also means I know just a matter of days from now, I'll be back in my hometown, Huntington Beach, California, surfing in the ocean. But here's what none of us really knew about that night was that we were actually being set up the entire time to get thrown the absolute worst circumstances we've been in on this entire deployment as we find ourselves getting set up on an ambush and suddenly now we are engaging in this gun battle for our lives. And it truly was the team's ability to shoot, move, communicate, and do what we do best as SEALs that led to the obvious conclusion I stand before you alive in front of this camera. But I do think it's worth remembering 
that our freedoms are not free. And what are they paid for in? They are paid for in the currency of our soldiers' blood on the battlefield. And how much more so is it true that our eternal freedom is not free? And when you think about it, it was paid for in the currency of our Savior's blood there at the cross. Perhaps more on that in a little bit, but like I said, I want to be getting into Exodus chapter 3 here. And as you guys are, are turning there, I also want to talk a little bit about you know, the history of our nation. I, I, I would assume that it's pretty safe to say uh, that most of you out there watching and listening right now are proud to be an American. But if you think about it, why is that? Why are you proud to be an American? What's so great about being an American? And somewhere at the very top of that list, I'm sure you're saying it in your mind, is freedom. And then probably like second or third after that might be something like In-N-Out Burger and Chick-fil-A. But freedom is at the top of that list. Well, when you think about it, what's so great about freedom? And after doing a little bit of introspect, you begin to realize, well, what's so great about freedom is the fact that freedom isn't free. They were brave men that, that stood in the gap and fought for freedom, that made that, their, that, that declaration, you know, give me liberty or give me death. You know, the freedoms that we enjoy, this isn't some built-in default position to life. Once upon a time, there was a tyrannical ruler, a King George III, that wanted to take freedom away from those living in the early Americas. But thankfully, we had these brave patriots, the first patriots that stood in that gap. And it was through blood, sweat, tears, hard work, and determination, declaring, give me liberty or give me death, that liberty ultimately came. Freedom came. And it was penned into history as that declaration of independence, where we declared that we are no longer a part of this tyrannical ruler. We are independent. We are free. And then we have some of the early fathers saying things like John Adams, that your generation will never know how much it costs my generation to preserve your freedoms. And he asks, he just says, I hope you will make good use of it. In other words, when we think about those words, to put it another way, when I wake up in the morning, my plans for today, whatever it is I have planned for later on, am I living a life that was worth dying for? You know, Mark Twain, he says, you know, history, it doesn't always repeat itself. That's kind of a popular phrase. History always repeats itself. He says, history doesn't always repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. And I think that we'll see that rhyme as we look here at Exodus chapter 3. We're going to see another tyrannical ruler, a king, that had people in bondage and captivity and slavery, but God had his patriot in place to deliver a sort of weaponized message, a declaration of independence. It was a message of let my people go. And so Exodus chapter 3, to bring you up to speed, we're in chapter 3. What has happened in the previous chapters? Well, we find ourselves in the land of Egypt. And Egypt is what? Well, it's the land of the Egyptians, but they coexisted. And some of the people they coexisted with were God's people, the children of Israel. And for a while, everything was going really good. Why? Well, because of one of Israel's own, Joseph. You remember his story, ultimate rags to riches story. This poor guy knows exactly what it's like to get brought up firsthand under the hands of domestic abuse. 
Then his brothers wanted to kill him, and they realized, you know what? We can actually turn a profit off of him, so they sell him into slavery. Human trafficking, again, another thing he knows firsthand. Then he gets wrongfully thrown into prison for something he did not do, but all the while he remained faithful to the Lord, and what happened? He went from prison to prince. He literally became second in command over all of Egypt, second in command only next to who? the very Pharaoh himself. And so because of his rise to prestige, I guess you could say the children of Israel, they were kind of riding along on his coattails. So everything was going great for the children of Israel in Egypt. But like so many good things in life, unfortunately, this one was not going to last. Eventually, Joseph died. And the king that knew Joseph, he died. And they inherit a new king. And as the scriptures say in Exodus 1.8, this was a new king that knew Joseph not. They lost their charitable king. And what they had inherited now is a genocidal king. This new king looked at the children of Israel and saw how they were flourishing. And he did not like that. And so he decided to give them backbreaking labor. He made it as difficult on them as he possibly could, but all the while God continued to bless them. They multiplied, they flourished, and that's when he just went next level to full genocide. He decided that he was going to have all of the Hebrew baby boys killed, executed, leave them exposed. Well, one would come to be born that we know as Moses. And his mother was not going to leave him out there exposed. And so Mama Bear devised the master plan. She hid him as long as she possibly could. And then she realized that the princess would often go down to the Nile River to bathe. And so perhaps if she put her baby boy in a basket in the Nile reeds, perhaps the princess's heartstrings would be tugged. Just maybe she would do something to step in. Well, sure enough, that's exactly what happened. She sees the boy, and she is actually the one that gave Moses his name, Moses. Isn't that a little ironic? An Egyptian princess is the one that gave the Hebrew boy his name, Moses, and it has a significant meaning. It means to be drawn out of. And so here's Moses there in those muddy Nile reeds, and as he gets drawn out, he goes from those muddy reeds to what? He literally becomes royalty. Second in command, not second in command. He, that, was, that was Joseph. But he becomes royalty to the point where he's living this life of prestige and eating at the king's table. And everything's going really good for him because he is a prince of sorts. But meanwhile, the children of Israel, they're still suffering. They're under this backbreaking labor. Things are not going so well for them. And so one day Moses decides he's going to step in. And the New Testament informs us Moses' motive. It says that he thought that his people would understand that God was going to use him to deliver them. And so one day there's an Egyptian beating on one of his countrymen. And so he lays hands on the guy, but takes things too far, winds up killing him, buries him in the desert, tries to cover up his mistake, and I think that's a lesson for all of us that when you try and cover something up, it will be exposed and it probably didn't take much more than a soft wind. And so it's revealed that this man was killed by Moses. And how do we know? Because another day goes by and a couple of his countrymen are in a dispute with one another. And so he's trying to play mediator, get between the two of them. Boys, fellas, what's going on here? And they're looking at him and they're saying, basically, who do you think you are? Who are you? 
Who made you judge and prince over us? What, are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? And could you just imagine the feeling that must have come over Moses at that moment right there? I mean, here he is, really sticking his neck out there on the line for his own countrymen. And it's like they turned it all around on him. And haven't you been there before? Where you've really put yourself out there for somebody. Expose yourself. Your neck's out there on the line. And maybe the reply was something like, well, I didn't ask you to do that for me. And so Moses realizes that this word's going to get out. That eventually the king's going to find out. And sure enough, the king did. And so what does the king do? He puts a hit out on Moses. And so now Moses is on the run. He is a fugitive. And we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 3, another 40 years later, out here in this desert place. And so Exodus chapter 3, if you have it, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Verse 1, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And so here's Moses 40 years way out in the back of the desert performing one of the most mundane, repetitious, boring jobs way out there in the desert. And maybe you find yourself feeling like you are in that desert place right now. Maybe you find yourself reflecting back on the rearview mirror of time, thinking about how great things used to be. Oh, Moses could look back and think about how good it used to be there in the palace, how he was living that life of prestige. It was so first class, getting to eat at the king's table, being an influencer, but now look at him. He's a nobody. He is a nothing. Just over and over repeating the same things, this mundane job. Why did I have to stick my neck out there on the line? Like I said, maybe many of you feel like you're going through that dry desert place right now. That maybe the relationship in the household with your spouse or with your kids has sort of fallen on that dry, hard ground. And you think back to when the kids used to be younger. You think back to when the relationship was a little bit fresher. How good things used to be back then. Or maybe in the workplace, things just aren't going the same. Or you think about everything we have going on in the world right now. How the world used to be before this COVID-19. How great things used to be before this pandemic. But now it is all just a desert dry season. Maybe, think about it. Being in this dry desert place is exactly where you and I need to be before God could take us and use us where he wants us. And I do believe there's biblical precedent for this. We know the, the story of Moses. 40 years he spends out there in that desert place, but ultimately he gets the call from God and God uses him to do what? He has the great honor of delivering the children of Israel out of the hand of the tyrannical ruler, the Egyptians. Or look at the children of Israel. They didn't just cross over to the Jordan River. They spent 40 years out there in the desert, in the wilderness, before what? Before they got across over that Jordan River into the land of milk and honey. Or you think of so many of the great men used by God like Moses or Elijah or John the Baptist, all known as what? Men of the wilderness. John the Baptist, man of the wilderness, before he had the great honor of making straight the way of the Lord. Or even consider the God-man himself, Jesus of Nazareth. 
Where was he before his preaching ministry began? 40 days and 40 nights out in the desert before the itinerant ministry started. And so maybe being in a dry desert place is exactly where you and I need to be before God takes us to where he wants us to be. There's an anonymous poem. I think it captures this brilliantly. And it goes like this. It says that when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all of his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods and watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands. While man's tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how God bends, but he never breaks when it's man's good that he undertakes. And how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he is about. And so you might be thinking to yourself, Lord, I don't know what you are up to. Lord, I do not know what you are about, but what you need to do is not be questioning him. What you need to do is be trusting in him like Joseph in that prison before he became prince. God is the master sculptor. And that hammer and chisel comes out. And sometimes he's chipping away and just taking off little parts. And other times there are whole chunks coming off and we are looking saying, ow, that really hurt, Lord, what are you up to? You don't question him. You just understand that he is the master sculptor. He has an image in mind. Watch his methods and watch his ways. We read on. Exodus chapter three, verse two. God speaking to Moses here, we will see. Verse two, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And so he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn. Look at verse four. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Verse four, worth reading again. Look at the observation that, that God makes. It's as though God's like, oh, now I have your attention, Moses. Verse four, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called him. It's quite possible that while Moses, it's quite possible that while Moses was living that life of prestige, while he was there eating at the king's table, maybe God could not have gotten his attention the way that he got his attention here. You know, C.S. Lewis makes the point that God's voice is like a whisper to us in our pleasures. You know, he speaks to our conscience. But pain and suffering oftentimes operates as God's megaphone to rouse a deaf ear. And so maybe when things were going so good, it would have been difficult to get Moses' attention. But you know that saying, there's no atheist in foxholes. Sometimes when you're really going through it, God really has your attention. And so now God has Moses' attention out there in the back of the desert. He sees that burning bush. He's got him. And so now God's going to speak to him. Verse 9. God speaking to Moses, he says, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. 
Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God is essentially saying, look, Moses, remember that thing you wanted to do 40 years ago? Well, it was the wrong time and you went about it in the wrong way. But look, man, you're getting the call now. I'm calling you. You are gonna be my patriot, Moses. You are going to deliver my declaration of independence. You are going to deliver that weaponized message to let my people go. He's finally getting the call. And look at Moses' response. What do we see? Verse 11, but Moses says to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I find it so interesting when you look back and think about it, what was the last question that Moses was ever asked 40 years earlier by his own countrymen? It was a challenge on his identity. Who do you think you are? And here we are 40 years later out there in the desert And I kind of feel bad for Moses. He's still stuck and circling the drain on that same question. Who am I? Who am I? This whole who am I mentality is so popular today. And it's toxic. I hate to hear it. Some people out there in the world just kind of feel like they are the victim of their own circumstances that there are so many things that are out of their control and their destiny is in a sense kind of just determined that this is just the deck of cards that I've been dealt in life and I'm just playing my part. Some people are more privileged than other people. Some people get better educations than other people. Some other people get better starts. This is just the DNA that I was born with. I want to inform you that your DNA does not determine your destiny. This whole who am I question really is the wrong question for Moses to be asking. And this couldn't be shown to be more true than in the beginning of SEAL training. You know, a lot of people think that Navy SEALs, wow, these guys, born and bred to be Navy SEALs, must be cut from another piece of cloth. That DNA, something in them, that toughness, that couldn't be further from the truth. SEAL training is a melting pot. You got guys from all different backgrounds showing up. Sure, some are former Olympic athletes, professional athletes, other guys never played a sport in their life and they show up to kind of throw their name in the hat to see if they are one of the ones that has what it takes. So a lot of people out there, they think that Navy SEALs, these are extraordinary men that go on to accomplish extraordinary things. Couldn't be further from the truth. Our SEAL creed, it actually says this, it is the common man. It's the common man with uncommon desire to succeed. A good example of this, that first day of training, I remember showing up, 173 of us together, and the instructor looks around the room, and he says, gentlemen, how many of you are willing to die before you quit? And so the whole class, we're pounding our chest saying, hoo-yah, that's our yes. And he goes, great, well, this is what I want you to do. Why don't you take a mental picture of the person on your left and on your right? So I'm looking around the room, And he says, in fact, why don't you do the same thing with the people in front of you and behind you? So I'm taking weird mental pictures of all these different people. And he goes, this is what I want you to do now. Chances are, if you're still standing here for graduation day, that means that each of these people that you just looked at by the law of averages, they didn't make it. So do you really think you're the one in the group? 
And I got to be honest, at that moment, I wind up looking around the room and begin to have this thought like, wow, like, where are these quitters going to come from? I know it's not going to be me, but at the same time, I'm looking around these guys and we've already gone through some pre-seal training together with these instructors have gotten us together and we've been beat down. We've been put through a grinding session and I don't see any quitting any of these guys. They all say that they will die before they quit the same way that I say it. And so I'm thinking, what is it going to take? And so realizing the majority of the room has got to go, I'm trying to find some of that low-hanging fruit. What are some of the guys that I can kind of pick off in my mind that those would be the guys that go early? And I'm struggling to actually find anyone I could pick off that way. And then my eyes land on this guy, Barth. And I'm like, oh, Barth. He captured my attention. Not in the way of there's somebody that's going to quit. He captured my attention in such a way where I thought, there's one of the guys that's definitely going to be there for graduation day. I mean, Barth, this guy, he was one of those guys that was cut from another piece of cloth. He was one of those guys you could talk about who was probably born and bred to be a Navy SEAL. He had that special DNA that produced the muscle and the stamina to where there's never a question over who is going to get first place. It was always Barth. In fact, he was in such a league of his own that the argument, the question, the debate that would take place amongst all of us other guys was who's grabbing second place? Because we know who's in first, it's Barth. So I'm thinking there's one of the guys that's definitely gonna make it. And then I'm kind of correcting myself, like what am I doing, man? I'm not supposed to be looking and finding guys that I think are gonna make it. I'm looking for the guys they're going to quit. So I'm looking around the room a little bit more. And how could I forget about this guy, Alex Gagne? Alex Gagne, he is the total antithesis of Barth. I mean, not only is this guy going to quit, he's like the locker room talk. He's going to be the first guy to quit. He's always in the very back. He is the runt of the litter. And so I'm kind of thinking to myself, at least I have that figured out. The first guy that's going to quit. Well, the irony of it all is that by the time we get to the most difficult part of SEAL training, which is called Hell Week, who is amongst the first to quit? Well, it wasn't this guy, Alex Gagne. Amongst the first to quit was Barth, the stud of the class, the, the guy born and bred to be a Navy SEAL. And who was amongst those that ultimately made it through that pipeline and became a Navy SEAL? This guy, Alex Gagne. That runt of the litter, that locker room talk. What does that demonstrate for you, men? I think that what that demonstrates is the truth of this principle. It is the common man with uncommon desire to succeed. And that is really great news. Why? Because yes, there are certain things in life that are literally completely uncontrollable. You have no say in. In fact, it says that God has pre-appointed our times and our boundaries. You don't determine the household you're going to be raised in. You don't determine the pedigree that you come from. You don't determine a lot of these things that you could call privilege. You do not determine your DNA. Here's the good news. Your DNA does not determine your destiny. What is the most important stuff? The most important stuff is stuff that is completely within your grasp. It is something that is accessible to everybody. It is your heart, your desire, your mindset. And that is what God is after. He is after heart. Moses is asking the wrong question saying, who am I? What he really needs to be asking is not things about his resume. God knows all about the resume. He knows about his past. The real question is, where's your heart, Moses? 
And again, there's biblical precedent for this because I can think of another runt of the litter that made it. Think about David. Think about what God says about David. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, he says, I don't look at man the same way that man looks at man. Why? Man looks at the outward appearance. What does the Lord look at? He looks at the heart. David was a man that was known for having a heart after God's own heart. But you want to talk about the runt of the litter. You want to talk about the guy that was literally last to be picked for the kickball team when they're looking for a new king and they're going through all of the boys of the house of Jesse. He wasn't even in the lineup of consideration, but God chose David. Why? Because of the heart that he had. And again, the scriptures say that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth to do what? Show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards him. And so God essentially could say, look, Moses, I know all about your resume, man. I know about the mess that you have on your hands. I understand you think that maybe I should have come to you sooner back when you think that you were somebody that was influential, back when you think you had a blue check mark next to your name on the social media. I realize they took that all away from you, but you're asking the wrong question. It's not who am I? Here's the right question. Who is my God? That's where the real power, that's where the real authority is. So Moses, who is your God? And in the meantime, check your heart. Common man, uncommon desire to succeed. And so Moses will eventually get around to asking the right question. He goes from this whole who am I mentality and he'll ask, who are you? What is your name? He's going to ask for some special revelation. And so God speaking to Moses says to him in verse 12, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you should serve God on this mountain. Then Moses says to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What is the divine name of God? I am. That I am name is one of the most revered names for God, even in Judaism, all the way up into this day. And I kind of, I cannot overemphasize just how powerful and important that I am name is. And this is sort of the cutting away part from Moses. And this is where I want it to get personal because this is a Veterans Day message. This is about being a soldier. And I want you to all understand that you all are soldiers. You are veterans in a sense of God's army. At least you should be. It says that you are a soldier for Christ in 2 Timothy. That we're not supposed to be getting ourselves entangled with the affairs of this world. Why? Because we're supposed to be about our assault leader's business. We want to please him who enlisted us. The cutting away part here is, look, we know who enlisted Moses, God. And what is his name? The divine name is I am. And Moses ultimately would follow through with that direct order. 
God wanted him to go to that Pharaoh and deliver a weaponized message. And that weaponized message had power in it. And that power came from the authority of God himself. When he said, let my people go, that was from God. And what did it do? It set captive people free. It broke the bondage. It broke the captivity that they were under, under a tyrannical ruler. Here's really what I want you to understand and this should sort of be a hair-raising moment, is that this same I am that spoke to Moses through the burning bush in a very personal way has spoken to you and I as well. And he has given us direct orders. He has given us a mission to deliver a weaponized message, a sort of let my people go message. And how do I get off with saying that? I want you to take something into consideration in the New Testament. As I was preparing this message and thinking about the things that are there in Exodus and remembering this divine name for God, I recalled that Jesus used this divine name and he ascribed it to himself in such a powerful way. And I thought to myself, as Jesus declared and claimed to be God right there, what a great passage to use with Jehovah Witnesses. Why? Because Jehovah Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is God. And they'll go a step further and emphatically declare that not only do the scriptures say that, never say that Jesus is God, but they'll say, and Jesus certainly never claimed to be God. Well, there's so many passages that we could turn to. We could look at uh, Doubting Thomas, who declared that Jesus was my Lord and my God. We could look at John chapter 1, where it talks about how in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. That word that became flesh, that word was, that was with God, that word was God. Clearly, that is the son of God. That is Jesus. But they always have their little ways of, you know, playing linguistic gymnastics, trying to insert words that are not even there in the original Greek, uh, like an indefinite uh, article, the letter A that Jesus, they try and say, was not God Almighty, but a mighty God. He is only a God. But what a powerful passage that we have here in Exodus chapter 3, 14, and what we'll read from John chapter 8, verse 58, because there's no escape hatch that they could use. There's no just trying to insert or change, you know, the Greek wording. It's context. Context they cannot wiggle out of. And the context goes something like this. There's only certain reasons why Jews could ever stone somebody. And they're all about following the letter of the law. And so they can stone somebody to death, capital punishment for certain reasons, like maybe being a murderer, maybe being a rapist, sexual immorality, uh, you know, uh, sex outside of marriage, adultery, or another one would be blasphemy. There's only certain reasons you can stone somebody during that time. One of the reasons that you cannot stone somebody for would just simply be somebody that seemed like they were a little bit crazy, maybe a little bit out of their mind, maybe thinking that they're a whole lot older than they really are. And so I want you to go into that with that understanding. And here's another crazy part is that as I was preparing this, I remember thinking to myself, what a perfect passage to share with Jehovah Witnesses. And I had a conscious thought of how here I am at my home, and I've never had Jehovah Witnesses come to my door. Not at this place that I'm living in. I've lived there for some time now, 
and all the previous places before, I've had Jehovah Witnesses at the door, and here I am right here. I've never had them at my door. And as I consciously thought about that, I kid you not, there's a knock at the door. And who is it at the door? It's Jehovah Witnesses. I couldn't believe it. And so I realized, God, this is a divine appointment. I'm going to I am them right now. And so we look at what Jesus says in John 8, 58. We look what God's word says in Exodus 3, 14. And so let me read this John 8, 58 for you. And I think it's important to understand one last thing as we go into this. That during Jesus' time, Hebrew, which is the language of God's people, was basically a forgotten language. Greek became the lingua franca of the day. It was Greek. And so because the, the people were forgetting and did not know Hebrew anymore, a little over 100 years before the life of Christ, the Jewish people, the scholars, the scribes, they became concerned, realizing that Hebrew is becoming a forgotten language. We need to get a language here. We need to get our text, the Old Testament, in this Hebrew and Aramaic. We need to get it from Hebrew into Greek so that we could get it to the people. And so they came up with a translation called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is Greek for the 70. They took 70 of their top preeminent premier scholars and they directly translated what we call the Old Testament from that Hebrew in some Aramaic into Greek. They came up with the sharpest, most accurate translation they possibly could. And this Septuagint was literally the translation of the day during Jesus' day. And Jesus saw it as authoritative. How do I get off saying that? Well, because this, here's what you might not know. The vast majority of the time you ever read Jesus in your New Testament quoting the Old Testament, you know what version he's quoting from? He quotes the Old Testament from the Septuagint the vast majority of the time. He, cre he, he, he quotes the Greek translation. That's important. Why? Well, because what's the Greek name for God in Exodus 3.14 when he says, I am? The Greek name for God would be ego ami. That is, I am. It is ego ami has sent me to you is what God wanted to relay to Moses when you read it in the Greek. That's significant, and we will see why. And so John chapter 8, verse 58 being the key scripture that we're going to tune into here. Let me, let me set up a little bit of context. Jesus, once again, is in another dispute with the Jews, and they are challenging him on his identity, a lot like Moses' countrymen. They're like, who are you? And they're talking about their pedigree. They're talking about where they come from. They're going on about, you know, their father, Abraham. And Jesus decides to just cut right to it. And so he makes this remark. He says, oh yeah, Abraham. Well, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. And so now the Jews are thinking to themselves, he's not even yet 50 years old. And he says that he has seen Abraham. And so they're thinking he's a little bit out of his mind. This isn't a person that you stone because they think that they pre-existed a long time. This is somebody that might be 5150, they're thinking. This is not somebody that needs to be hurt. This is somebody that needs our help. And then look at Jesus' response. 
in John 8, 58, Jesus says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego ami in the New Testament. And so it's as though Jesus was saying, you guys want to know who I am? They're questioning his identity. They're going on about pedigree. They're bringing up Abraham. What Jesus did is he lifted up a modern translation of their scriptures of that day, flipped to Exodus 3, 14, and he points his finger there to where it says of God that he is the ego on me. And Jesus says, you want to know who I am? Most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, that's me. Ego on me. He claimed to be God. He took the divine name ascribed to God, the ego on me in Exodus 3, 14, ascribed it to himself. And it was not lost upon the Jews of what he was saying at that moment. How do we know? Look at what they did instinctually in that following moment. What did they do? Then they took up stones to throw at him. They wanted to stone him. Remember, you can't just stone somebody for any reason. You have to have a reason for doing it. A person claiming to pre-existed and live a long time is not a valid reason to stone them. One of the valid reasons for stoning is blasphemy. They clearly understood what he was claiming right there. He was claiming to be God. The problem was this. They didn't believe that he was God. No question about what he was claiming right there. And so as I have these Jehovah Witnesses at the door, I make the same point. And I go, look at, there's no other reason that they could be picking up stones to throw at him. And I remember the younger one, the protege. Those are the ones that typically you can kind of get through to. As I'm sharing these things with them, these, they're flipping back and forth from Exodus 3.14 to John 8.58. And they're going, wow, I never seen that before. And so they are having their eyes open to the reality that Jesus clearly claimed to be God. And you can't escape it based off the context of things. And the older one, the one that was like sort of the trainer, says, well, I see you have your hands here uh, pretty full with your kid, and so we want to get out of here. And I said, no, let's let's stick around. Let's talk this out. And they said they got some other things they got to get to. And said, I, I said, hey, take my number down. Come on back. Let's arrange a time. And so they said, yeah, sure. And so I started to share my number with them, and I realized they're not taking it down. And so I asked them, did you get it? And they said, yeah, we got it. And I said, hey, just repeat it back to me so I know you got it right. And they just said, yeah, yeah, we, we got it. And i never seen them since. Uh, but all that to say, look, it clearly Jesus claimed to be God. And what I want you to really understand is he claimed to be the one that was the burning bush speaking out of it that spoke to Moses. And in John chapter 10, there's no mistake because again, they try and stone him. And he says, many good works I performed in your sight. For which of these do you want to stone me? And they say, not for a good work, but for you being a man, make yourself to be God. That same I am that commissioned Moses with a weaponized message to deliver to the Pharaoh of that age that had people in bondage and captivity and slavery, but that weaponized message set captive people free. That same I am has commissioned you and I with what? The great commission. And it goes out to all. And that great commission is a weaponized message. And we are living in a day and age where there is a Pharaoh, as it were, the prince of the power of the air. The Bible calls him the God of this age. He is a Pharaoh. 
And he has people in bondage, captivity, slavery to what? To sin. And so many of them are so unaware. But you and I are very aware. And so this I am that spoke to Moses, he looks at you and I, and he says, I want you to deliver this weaponized message, the let my people go message, which is what? It's the gospel message. The gospel message is the greatest weapon we have to charge the kingdom of darkness with soldiers for Christ. Why? Because it has the ability to set captive people free because the gospel message is the power of God unto salvation. And so why aren't we out there sharing it? And so I really want you all to go away as we pull things together here with this understanding that you, in a sense, are soldiers for Christ. You are the veteran. You are a seal for Christ. And as Navy SEALs, we've been given a duty and a task. What are one of the enemies that we're up against? We're up against guys that are like suicide bombers. And suicide bombers, when you think about it, they're strapped, aren't they? And they know that they're going down. They know they're going down. They, they know they're going to die. But what is their goal? Their goal is to take out as many people with them as they possibly can in the process. But if we as Navy SEALs are successful at what we do, what do we do? We sabotage the plans of the enemy. We set captive people free in a very similar way. Please understand, you are this veteran. You are this soldier for Christ. You are the SEAL for Christ. And you have been given a duty and a task, a commission to do what? Take the fight to the ultimate suicide bomber. The ultimate suicide bomber. And who is that? Satan. Remember, suicide bombers, they know they're going down, but they're not content with just that. What do they want? They want to take out as many people with them as they possibly can in the process. Have we not read the back of the book? Isn't Satan the ultimate suicide bomber? The ultimate terrorist? He is strapped. He's going down into that lake of fire, but he's not content with just that, is he? What does he want? Just like every other suicide bomber out there, he wants to take out as many people with them as he possibly can in the process. And we need to make that personal. Those are our family members that he's going after. Those are our friends. Those are our co-workers. But if you and I are successful, we deliver the weaponized message of let my people go, the gospel message. You and I have been commissioned to do just that. And so there's our marching orders right there, men of God. One of my favorite quotes, and I'll leave off with this one, by C.S. Lewis. He says, enemy occupied territory. That is what this world is. But Christianity is the story about how our rightful king has landed, you might say in disguise, and now he's calling us all to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. That campaign of sabotage is spreading the gospel message, putting a dent in that kingdom of darkness, and sabotaging the plan, sabotaging the plans of the enemy of our soul. Amen. Let me close in prayer. So, Father, we're just so thankful for the freedoms that we enjoy, realizing they do not come freely, that there are brave men that have gone before us and paid the ultimate price. We certainly remember your son Jesus who paid that ultimate price. And we remember now that as we speak, there are brave men standing in the gap, defending this way of life, being a living sacrifice. And Lord, we realize that we are called to be standing in that gap in a spiritual sense, that just as there are those out there spreading blood for the sake of freedom, our freedoms are not free, 
but they're paid for in the currency of our soldiers' blood on the battlefield. We realize that we're supposed to be putting out that spiritual sweat, uh, that in a sense, Lord, we're supposed to be putting in that hard work to be advancing your kingdom. And so, Lord, we do not take it lightly how we have been commissioned by that great I am. I pray that you would give every man that is listening right now on every man the courage and the strength to go and deliver that weaponized message, that they would have the courage and the strength to be saboteurs with divine justification, sabotaging the plans of the enemy of our soul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey guys, Chad Williams again. Just a real quick housekeeping detail. Uh, a lot of people will ask about this frog that I have on the shirt here. You can kind of see it a little bit better on the back of the shirt. And it's something that we call a bone frog uh, in the SEAL teams. And so sometimes people think like, hey, what is that frog all about? Is that like part of the curse? Is that something demonic right there? I've been asked all these questions, no. In the SEAL teams, the reason that we wear this frog or this bone frog is to honor and remember fallen frog men. And so it has significance to it in that sense. And so those words on the back of the shirt, again, to honor them, a familiar passage, greater love has no one than this one that lays down his life for his friends. Uh, but you'll notice intentionally there's no scripture reference there. It's John 15, 13. But why no scripture reference? Well, because if I put a John 15, 13 there, then a lot of people that would be intrigued and want to ask a question about the frog, they don't ask that question. Why? Because they realize, oh, it's like one of those God shirts or a Bible shirt. I don't want to step into that one. But because that's not there, uh, they'll be intrigued by the frog and they ask that question, what's that frog all about? And this is where you can inform them, well, this frog represents frogmen, Navy SEALs that have shed their blood for your earthly freedom. And then they see those words on the back of the shirt, but they're not quite sure who said it. And they say, I really like those words. It seems familiar. Who is that? And they'll throw something out there like, is that Socrates? Is that Plato? And that's where you get to inform them, no, it's not. Actually, that's the savior, Jesus. And have you ever thought about this? that just as these Navy SEALs have shed their blood for your earthly freedom, that savior who spoke those words shed his blood for your eternal freedom. The response that I get is almost the exact same scripted. I could mouth it for them every time they go, wow, I never thought about it that way before. And so that's what the frog on the shirt and the frog uh, on the hat uh, is all about. And uh, those will be made available to you all uh, at my website. I'm sure they'll put a link up, sealofchrist.com. And uh, finally, if you guys are curious in terms of what happened in that ambush that I originally brought up in the beginning of the message, if you really wanna know what happened in that ambush, you're gonna have to get the book, all right? And so uh, I'd be happy to sign copies and send them out to you. Make sure you guys check out that link uh, to where you can get these items. God bless you guys. Thank you for your time.